The Weekly Driver Podcast receives support from americantrucks.com, your late model Silverado, Sierra, Ram, and F-150 online aftermarket retailer, bringing you all of the hottest parts from accessories to lift kits, from wheels to tires and winches. americantrucks.com has the knowledge and know-how to make your wildest dreams come to reality. Visit americantrucks.com. Welcome back to the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. My co-host is Bruce Aldrich. I am the editor and publisher of theweeklydriver.com, and I write an automotive column for Bay Area News Group, which is the San Jose Mercury News and the East Bay Times. Our guest today is Mark Glover. He is a, a longtime journalist, and nothing but respect for Mark. Uh, we worked together for a short while, and I've known of him for many, many years. And before we get going, Mark, I just wanted to say that um, I've respected your work and what you do over the years, whether it's automotive or business or breaking news. You are a, uh, a pro's pro in the journalistic world, so, so thank you for all of that, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, I've followed your career, obviously. Uh, you've done admirable work for many, many years. Uh, much respect on this end as well. Thank you. Well, we, we're calling you today because this will upcoming uh, will be your 56th Indianapolis 500, and it's an iconic year this year for many reasons. So I wanted to start out with you today, Mark, to, if you could explain to us when your long career uh, going to Indy began and um, if you can condense it a little bit, what that's been like for the past 55 and soon to be 56 years. Well, to tell you the truth, it's, uh, my father gets all the credit on this. He came back from the uh, Pacific Theater in World War II. He went to the 1946 race. They hadn't raced in Indy since 41. The world was starved for racing, and the crowds uh, were couldn't be handled by the Speedway. I think he got in to see half the race with my mom-to-be and then uh, as uh, my older brother was born in 1950 he went to the 1960 race I stayed with my great aunts I understand that I was so horrible about missing the race and treated my poor aunts so badly that they had to take me the next year so uh, 1961 I was seven years old uh, and I went to my first Indy 500 uh, some guy named A.J. Foyt won the race that year. He was a 26-year-old hotshot. Wow. And, um, and then over the years, um, I just kept going. I guess if you survive anything long enough, you become a legend in some scale. Uh, people think I'm, I've seen them all since 61. That's not true. Uh, I was a young journalist out of college in uh, 76 and 77 and got new jobs. Missed both of those races. Looking back on it. <laughs> It wouldn't have made a difference. I, I was foolish to miss them, but I didn't feel right at the time. So I've just kept going no matter where I lived. And obviously for the past 34 years, it's been California, and we make the trek. Wow, that's that's a long history. You know, back in those days, when you first started going, they used to have the, the flaggers used to stand out on the racetrack, right, at the end with the checkered, and maybe for other, maybe for the start, too. And uh, things have come a long way since that. Looking back on it, I just, my skin crawls. Uh, Pat Vedan was the very athletic flag man, and he would indeed step out onto the track as the winning car <laughs> flashed by to wave the checkered flag. Thank God there were no uh, disasters that, uh, I mean, and you look at those cars back then, the roadsters, uh, 
the drivers were just, uh, I mean, they were in the shell, so much room for their bodies to move around. It was so dangerous that uh, you almost think, I've always thought there was a post-World War II thing about it in the 50s and 60s that, well, fighter pilots went off to war in, uh, in World War II, why shouldn't we do this? I mean, that was the level of sort of macho bravery that existed. And quite frankly, if you ask the young hotshot driver today to go back in time and say, okay, I want you to get in this 180 mile an hour cigar tube and uh, with just your seatbelts and drive in, in traffic with 32 other drivers, my guess is that young guy might want to sell insurance instead. I don't think they'd do it. I agree. <laughs> and they used to have fires back in the day, too, and they've, they've learned uh, how to handle that and different fuels. Yeah, back in 64, um, the technology, the rear-engined te- rear technology had gotten ahead of the of the thought process and the safety process, and that's when you had that huge gas fuel crash that killed California and uh, Dave McDonald and the very popular uh, Eddie Sachs. They had outboard gas tanks. It was insane when you look back on it. Uh, very unsteady, twitchy, rear-engine-driven uh, cars. So they finally got smart after that. They employed some of that uh, uh, bladder technology, rubberized bladders in the fuel tanks that had been developed in the Vietnam War. Uh, and they went away from gasoline, which had that high flash point, sure. uh, and went with methanol and ethanol blends uh, over time. Mark, uh, you mentioned um, early in the conversation A.J. Foyt, and that made me think about, um, if you can, do you have a favorite driver throughout your time at the Indy 500, or do you have more than one favorite driver? It's it's very <laughs> it's very hard to narrow it down to one. Yes. Having spent so much time there, people ask me, "Well, who do you think was the best driver you ever saw?" And and it, quite frankly, it's the answer is the same, uh, pretty much as it was in the '60s. It's a it's a tough uh, match between Foyt and um, Mario Andretti. Yes. Uh, the thing with Mario is that uh, of all the incredible things he accomplished, the one black mark, if you will, on his career was he just had terrible luck at Indianapolis. Yes. He had just the one win in 1969. But I think you have to take Foyt and put him on the mountaintop because he began in the 50s in those very dangerous roadsters. And then he not only won in those, he won in rear engine cars of his own making. So, and it was four wins, which of course is the record tying amount with Al Unser Sr. and Rick Mears. Uh, I think given that, the, the fact that he spanned those two eras, especially the very dangerous Roadster era, and won no matter what, I would say he's probably the greatest driver in Indy 500 history. Yes. I remember many years ago, I was worked for a short time at the newspaper in Monterey, the Monterey Herald, and at that time, uh, Laguna Seca had cart uh, racing. and. The one year that I worked there, I, and I, didn't, I don't know much now, but I certainly knew less then, I, I had a chance to interview uh, Little Al and um, uh, Danny Sullivan and a few other guys, and I asked them a question that they, they didn't take offense to, but I just didn't know any better, and I asked them if they actually thought at the time, and imagine that me asking this, that if they thought that um, being an IndyCar driver uh, or the kart series or other automotive was, um, endeavors was a sport. And they all you looked at me, I was you know 25 years old or whatever I was, and they all laughed and said, well, their answer is always the same, that uh, try doing something for 
for multiple hours without stopping, like unlike an NBA game or a football game or whatever it might be, a more traditional sport where there's timeouts and things. And these guys just have to do it, you know, from start to finish. And I'm wondering if anybody asked, ever asked you that question, if you think auto racing is a sport or was it just so naive on my part that I just didn't understand it? There's sort of a two-part answer I yes. have. Uh, I think it was Hemingway said there are only three genuine sports, mountaineering, bullfighting, and auto racing. Fantastic. Obviously because of the high, st- high stakes involved, uh, yes. literally, with your life. But, you know, I always, I, I do have a standard answer to that, and I always, I do get that, well, you know, it's not really a sport, you're just sitting there driving a car. Right. So, what I tell people is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a pair of long underwear, put it on. And then uh, during one of Sacramento's really hot days, I want you to go out in the yard, sit down in a chair, keeping in mind you're not going to get up from that chair for the next three hours. And I want you to take bricks, one in each hand, and hold them out in front of you. And you can move them around a little bit, but you keep, have to keep those bricks uh, in your hands and in your possession for the next three hours as you're sitting out in the hot sun in that long underwear. Yes. And then I want you to envision yourself going 235 miles an hour with 32 viciously competitive people inches away from uh, the other cars, knowing that if you hit one of those other cars, you could maim yourself or perhaps worse. And, uh, and then I say, if you can come back in after that three hours and say there's no athleticism involved, well, congratulations <laughs> right. to you. That with that answer, Mark, they would never ask the question again. That's a great answer. Thank you. You put that put that one to bed. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. is incredible because you realize a lot of people don't realize the physical forces involved at that speed, and internally, of course, their heart rates are going you know anywhere from one thirty five to one seventy five for a long period of time in Indianapolis. So add that in there, and might, you know, I think by any definition, this is uh, not only athletic but it's almost off the charts competitive yes sure mark i was wondering uh, what were some of the through your many years were some of the memorable moments i'm thinking stuff like when danny sullivan did the spin to win i think it was 85 there must have been other things like that can, that come to mind there were you know uh, we for years we my my family and i we sat on the main straightaway right pretty much the start finish line what I remember most back then is in, in 61 when I went for the first time, believe it or not, the entire front straightaway was still brick. Uh, they didn't pave down to the one yard of bricks until uh, 1962. So I remember you'd see here these cars would start nose to tail, believe it or not, because that's how they came up through sprint cars and what have you. And you'd, you'd hear this rumble on the bricks and the cars would go into the first term and you'd, you know, you'd hear them on the back stretch. You'd wait 30 or 40 seconds. And then you turn down to turn four, you swivel your head down there, and here they come. Today, it's they're going so fast that by the time the 33rd car gets to the first turn, at about the time it takes for you to swivel your head around to turn four, here they come again. That's That, to me, is the biggest change, is the remarkable speed uh, that I've witnessed. Danny Sullivan, I was sitting on the front stretch. It happened between turns one and two, between Mario and... Uh, Danny and we were all we were all kind of like we have back then we had scanners and things plugged into our ears and we were like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Did he spin? Did he end of the wall? And we were there was literally confusion where I was sitting, and then we realized, oh my gosh, he somehow did a 60, and here he comes into the pits. And 
that indeed was a memorable moment. The most memorable moment, uh, and it's, it's a sad moment, uh, I've already mentioned it was the 1964 crash that, uh, that uh, killed Dave McDonald and Eddie Sachs, because it was arguably just as visually as, as monstrous a thing as ever happened, uh, with the exception perhaps of 1955 with Le Mans. Um, what, the reason it's, it's, I've always remembered that day is uh, I was only 10 years old, and up to that point it was exciting. But that day I learned that it was not only exciting, it's also very dangerous. And, and that stuck with me uh, to this very day. Bad consequences, that's for sure. Have the drivers changed through the years? Have you been able to approach them through all your years? Uh, any interviews or what have you? Are they a different type of person, do you think? Or, or what's your take on that? They are more approachable now. Uh, back in the 60s uh, and 70s, I remember if you tried to go up to... Uh, to A.J. Foyt or anybody else right before the race, you're you're probably taking your life in your hands. And I understood. I mean, because they were do was, <laughs> back then. You know, it was it was not unusual back in the '60s for four or five named drivers to be killed in in open wheel racing in a given year. It's hard to believe, but it was true. Back then, you just they were so lasered in on this very dangerous business that um, they were totally unapproachable before the race. That changed, and I think it changed for a couple of reasons. NASCAR came onto the scene, and I remember this. You could go up to NASCAR drivers, and they marketed this very carefully. They were brilliant about it. And you could talk to them. Hey, Mark, how's your dad? Uh, talking to Daryl Waltrip, you know, five minutes before gentlemen start your engines. And you could do that. And NASCAR sort of, I think the, the Indy boys saw that, especially since the Indy Carter sport became safer, and said, hey, you know, maybe we ought to... Uh, be a little less uh, stoic about this and, and more open. And I think that's happened over the years, especially as marketing and drivers have become uh, more spokespersons than, uh, than drivers in some cases. Well, it would be a perfect time, and I would be remiss in not asking. Um, this year is significant. I think it's significant um, in one area, of course, with Danica Patrick um, r racing for the last time. And um, have you followed her career to any great degree and do you have an opinion about this being her last uh, ride and might it overshadow the the racing the spectacle of her being there or do you have a, a an opinion one way or the other about her long uh, somewhat controversial career when she came into indycar in 2005 i knew about her i had known about her for uh, in her pre indy racing career and that she had ability but we were blown away uh, in 2005 when very, very late in the going, it looked like she could win it. In fact, one of the loudest noises I have ever heard in Indianapolis was when uh, she was in a late race caution period and it appeared that this 23-year-old rookie female could win the Indianapolis 500. Yes. There was a wall of noise as she circled the track. I mean, that's how, and I think that's how the Danica legend sort of began right at that moment. Yes, and she ended up uh, with fuel mileage and what have you. Uh, she ended up finishing fourth, as I recall. But an incredible debut. We were all kind of disappointed. She had won an Indy car race in uh, Japan. That's unprecedented, of course. Yes. Uh, and when, then when she went to NASCAR, we we always thought, quite frankly, she was she was built for uh, driving a high speed open wheel race car. And 
and I think her NASCAR results kind of bore that out. Uh, she never was, uh, she had a couple pole positions, as I recall, but not terribly competitive in the races. Um, can she win this? I get that, uh, I've gotten that a lot. Can she win this race? Absolutely she can. She has a very good car. If things go right, she avoids trouble. She has the ability to win this race. And then I think she's got a real question uh, to answer is, now do you want to leave the sport when you're the defending Indy 500 champion? <laughs> That's uh, right. There we go. She might. I, I, if that happened, if she actually won the race, and yes, that is possible, I think she might have to rethink uh, her plans. Yes. I, uh, I've watched um, some exercise videos of her um, as an athlete, and obviously she's a very petite, fit woman, but looking, having, having never seen her do an exercise workout, I was very impressed by her flexibility and her strength and her, just, I didn't realize she was such an athlete. Uh, she's pretty remarkable. Uh, she could probably do some other sports if she chose to after her racing career. She's as fit as uh, an Olympic-level gymnast. It's, it's truly, she's, she's been serious about it. That appears to be her post-racing uh, post endeavor. She's going to uh, press for uh, uh, certainly fitness and related products. She's a remarkable woman in that uh, uh, a lot of people don't realize uh, that an Indy car does not have power steering. Mm -hmm. And to turn the wheel on an Indy car involves constant aerobic effort. In fact, she said when she got back in the Indy cars earlier this month, she said the wheel is so heavy because a NASCAR has a power steering device. So she had to, even at her level of fitness, she had to sort of work up to turning the wheel on an Indy car. Yeah, I, I heard that Rusty too. Rusty Wallace uh, got an Indy car a few years back. He said, I couldn't turn the wheel. I couldn't turn the wheel. That's how, that's what it you know how much effort it takes so add that into the athleticism quotient sure it's amazing yeah what what else can you tell us about like the cars this year what's uh, new what's uh you know good bad about them i'll confess to being nervous this year they've they, they've changed what is called the aero package which is a fancy way of saying how the air flows over the car um they they removed some of the back skirts, which punched such a big hole in the air in the past. So now you have a sleeker car with a very minimal uh, back wing. Um, and it's making me nervous because the cars are undoubtedly twitchy in the turns, less downforce uh, to deal with. And when you have 33 cars going into turn one on Sunday, that makes me nervous. Um, they flow through the air nicely. Uh, in, in the recent years, the cars had such a big back end on it that it punched a great big hole in the air, and you'd have passing on almost every lap. The drivers seem to feel this year the top two cars, if you're racing in a, in a string, the front two cars are going to be able to pass, but behind them it's going to be very difficult because the, air, the, the hole that's punched in the air that allows a draft to pass, that's going to be smaller. So I'm not sure we'll see as much passing this year, and I'm a little nervous about contesting uh, for positions uh, through the turns. That, that's odd. Why would the rules makers seemingly go backwards in, uh, in yeah, progress? I know. I know. They, it, it's been a spec series, of course, uh, for, for a long time, meaning every car is virtually the same. Sure. I was a little puzzled at, as well because I, I, I can't remember. I want to say in 2013 they had something like, 60 passes for the lead during the 500, which was incredible to watch. 
But yeah. I, I also, I, I guess they listened to the drivers to some extent. The drivers said, look, you know, we realize if you, if you take away some of that downforce, it's going to make for less passing, but we want more control over the cars. We want the drivers to, um, uh, the driver's ability to show. And so I guess they made that compromise with the idea that the best driver, you know, is going to have to control a car that's twitchy and um, it's sometimes a little bit uh, dodgy and dangerous, but the, the best driver will come through. I guess that's the theory, and I, I think that's uh, the, the movement that caused the rule changes. Oh, I see. That makes sense. What kind of motors are they running? Well, they're basically running turbocharged, very small Honda and or Chevy engines, comparatively small generate a lot of horsepower uh i mean depending on who you listen to somewhere in the 700 plus range uh, obviously with the turbo you get a little more jump out of the, the cars they went away from turbos for a while that's why the one and four lap records at indy still stand from 1996 uh when they did have turbos the last year before they acted them recently uh the best thing about um watching these turbocharged Chevy and Honda engines is the incredible acceleration you get and the uh, incredible straightaway speeds. It's fun racing to watch. It's sort of the edge of the envelope, and I, I think that's why I enjoy it so much. I see. I bet the sound has changed through the years, too, with all the different motors, turbo, non-turbo. Back in the Roadster days when I was first going, it was kind of a rumble and a roar. I mean, <laughs> you could feel it in the soles of your feet, uh, but now it's more of a high-pitched whine, especially with that turbo uh, turning the revs up above 12,000 RPM. Wow. Uh, it is a, it is a, it is a, almost like a super amplified hornet's nest uh, when they go by uh, in packs. Mark, uh, I apologize for not knowing this, but there's this old expression, I think it might have been Mark Twain who said, what people don't realize is that journalists are working even when they're just looking out the window. So I'm wondering if you're going as a spectator, uh, as uh, an official journalist, or as a journalist because you're a journalist and you're going to go with your family. So in what capacity are you going to Indy the, these days? I've gone in every capacity in the past. Yes. I, I did cover it for a while, I, I full-blown coverage, and uh, that was fun. Uh, but I confess that there's a certain pleasure to simply going and, and being a happy, uh, lucky witness to history. I do go pretty much with my son now. Uh, it'll be his 28th race, my 56th. Uh, we have friends from back in the days when uh, my family lived in Dayton, Ohio, where I grew up. We have a couple friends come over from nearby Yellow Springs, Ohio. It's kind of pleasant to just simply watch Yes, I do a pre-race thing on my blog, and I do a post-race thing on my blog, but it's uh, it's far short of being uh, totally committed as a journalist, but fun nevertheless. It's, it's fun sometimes. Um, I completely understand that. I hadn't really been to a college football game in 25 years, and I went with a friend a few years ago, and there was this great um, feeling of just being able to watch a football game in the stands 
with a hot dog and a beer. So I, I it was it was fantastic. So not have to I worry. Am to, I am totally there. I remember doing that uh, after I was I, I was a sports writer long ago, and I remember yes. going to games and thinking, oh no, no, how many yards did he gain? What's the spot on the ball? Like, yes. Wait, I don't need to do that anymore. Isn't that a great feeling? Um, so um, I also understand, Mark. There's two different areas. Number one, you mentioned your 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 auto blog and and i wanted to let people know that you are uh you're a car reviewer you um as a matter of fact we we have we write about some of the same cars often so um how long have you had your i believe it's called auto glow and how long have you had that go ahead i'm sorry yeah that started in 2009 autoglow.blogspot.com thank you uh and yes we do we do review the same cars in fact i will sometimes uh, talk to, uh, it's either one of the two Bay Area brokers, which I'm sure you are familiar with. Uh, and I say, now you taking this car to James, or how come James got that car first? And I say the same uh, thing, uh, vice versa. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we share we share that. But I also understand um, another area that I, I'm a big museum guy or memorabilia guy, and I understand that you have, uh, maybe it's the, the, the most well-known uh, collection of indie memorabilia and is it in a museum so to speak or do you have it in a collection of, do friends and family see it and could you tell us about the, your your long collection of, of indie and maybe some other automotive uh, things that you've collected through the years well in, in indie it probably is one of the nicer uh, or more extensive uh, private collections and it's simply because of the length of time uh, obviously I caught the break of going for years and just picking up uh, the the bronze pins and the silver pins that are so uh, become so valuable from years past and programs and and what have you i i would admit with some shame that i used to have a, a little thing in the california automobile museum in sacramento with yes. my uh, programs in it dating back to 1911 literally the first rays and pins I now admit with some shame that my collection is in cigar boxes, okay. cardboard boxes strewn throughout the house uh, that I keep telling myself I must get this organized uh, so I can pass it on to my son at some point. Among the items uh, that are probably the most interesting in, in my collection, or two of them that come to mind, is I actually have a beat-up old 1911 program. That's the first 500 Wow. And whoever had that program back at those uh, in those days, more than a hundred years ago, you can actually see where they've written. They were keeping a running score of the race in pencil. Fantastic. They had written Ray, Ray Haroon's name as the leader, and you know he won the race. Obviously, I always fantasize about that program. I know that uh, there were veterans of the Battle of Gettysburg that attended that first 500. And I thought, gee, maybe the guy who had this program in his hands all those years ago was a battle a veteran from Gettysburg. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The other, uh, the other item I have is kind of rare. It's a 1946 pin, uh, like you see now you have a bronze badge and, and silver badge. Um, but there are only about 500 of those made. Uh, because they weren't sure after World War II how long it would take them to run the next race. So it's, it's in pristine condition. The backstory on it is apparently the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was vying for the same pin from the uh, owner uh, at the same time I was. But the owner, uh, according to him, not my, uh, not my uh, story, 
according to the owner, the Speedway was pressuring him to give it away. Oh. And I actually paid cash money for it, <laughs> uh, when, when I actually had cash money. And, um, and so I'm the owner of that pin. So those are probably my two prize items. Um, I meant you mentioned your son, and, and this will be his 28th, I believe you said. Um, Correct. What a, uh, I don't have a, a son, but I, you know, we have neighbors with sons, and, and um, I know other you know, family friends who have children, and it must be a phenomenal thing if you could share. What's it like to have a son who appreciates, obviously, the passion you have for it when you guys go back there? What a, what a great father-son experience, and, and what's that been like through the years? To be honest with you, that is the best part. I, um, I mean, if we, we, the things we do, the places we visit, even, even if the race is delayed by rain or is stopped short by rain, which could happen this year, yes. based on the forecast, those those memories, uh, you know, when we were there with my dad and uh, our relatives and past friends, and past wives, and, yes. <laughs> and what have you. Those are all very special, uh, and those, you know, in the end, that's that's what makes it special. It, it's uh, it's more than the racing and the stats that go with it. Uh, we've been lucky every day. We we look at each other, my son and I, when we're at dinner the night before the race, and we say, "Aren't we lucky? We're just so lucky." Imagine families that would want to do this just one time, just one time, and yet we've been able to do it for years. So that that really is, uh, in my view, the best part. That's fantastic. Yes. They used, they used to call this the, the greatest spectacle in racing, I think. Is, 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 would that be a fair? Is that certainly the best one for you, this uh, Indy? That's, that's what I tell people. That was actually coined by, I want to say, a, a Indy, Indianapolis Motor Speedway secretary and Sid Collins, the famous radio broadcaster, I want to say did that in 1955? I don't know. But, yes, they still call it the greatest spectacle in racing. I tell people you should go once. You see the race way better on TV, no question. Yes. You get every angle, you get every close-up, every development, but you really can't describe the the ambiance, the spectacle of it all, uh, and the heartbeat uh, that races until you've gone once. And so that's what I tell people. I said, you, you see the great race on TV, good for you. If you can go once, you got to do that. Yes. You, you got me convinced. I got to yeah, get on. Like, I got to yeah. get on StubHub right now. Get, I think you get a, get a late ticket and get everything. Get a Motel Six. Squeeze us in there somewhere. Yeah, uh, actually, my wife went one time, uh, probably twenty years ago, and she still talks about it. So, yeah, I, what you just said must—that's it. It's it's something you remember. Just listening to you uh, with all of your knowledge, um, and I want to apologize again for not knowing. Have you written automotive books, and and would you? Have you entertained uh, writing a book about your, your long time at, at Indy? I mean, journalists are supposed to keep obviously keep themselves out of the story most of the time, but this would be an instance where the opposite would be true. Your, your wealth of knowledge would be a great book. I actually have a uh, data stick with the beginnings of a book on it. Uh, I have always promised myself to write that book. I have extensive notes and memories, so... Uh, Maybe someday. Uh, I know everybody says that, but I, uh, that is a work in progress, which I would certainly like to see uh, done. Even if it doesn't sell more than 100 copies, I could still say I did it. Uh, I actually wrote a screenplay years ago that I sent to Paul Newman that I don't know whatever happened to it. Apparently it made the rounds. 
that uh, it did not see the light of day, but I do have copies of the completed screenplay wow. <laughs> up in my attic. So uh, I, if people say, well, did you really do that? I can, I can say yes, and here's the certified mail I got back from Paul Newman's agent, uh, mm. even though it went nowhere. That's great. Well, Mark, thank you for the, the last half hour. We really appreciate the the time, and uh, you, you've made me excited. Uh, I, I usually watch indie, of course, but now I'm really, I can't wait to watch indie with all the, the insight <laughs> sure. that you've added to the podcast. So we want to thank uh, Mark Lover for being our guest today on the Weekly Driver podcast. Please uh, visit and, and read his um, car reviews on uh, autoglow.blogspot.com. And please visit my website, theweeklydriver.com, where you can uh, listen to Mark's um, podcast and all the other archived episodes we have uh, on our podcast. And now we're almost 40 episodes into it. And uh, so, Mark, thank you very much for your time today. And and as always, I'm sure you're going to have a great time. And and thanks for being our guest. Thanks so much. I really enjoy your work. Uh, Outstanding work. Uh, Really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you again, Mark. Have a nice day. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. The Weekly Driver podcast gets support from AmericanMuscle.com, your late model Mustang and F-150 authority, bringing you the hottest products and top-notch customer service for over a decade. No one makes it easier to modify your ride. Visit AmericanMuscle.com today.